Hello and welcome to a new series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're on season eight now, would you believe? And as regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. The COVID virus is still running amok. And at the time of recording, another lockdown has just started in England. As a result, we're recording this episode over the internet. But regardless of that, today it gives me huge pleasure to talk to the product designer, Peter Marigold. I repair things like I obsessively repair things and I obsessively make things. Empowering people to make things and fix things and take care of the world is not talked about. Peter originally studied sculpture at Central St. Martin's before changing tack and enrolling at the Royal College of Art in 2004. Since then, he has created gallery pieces for the likes of Libby Sellers and more recently Sarah Myerskoff, had furniture and shelving manufactured by SCP and others, as well as creating a porcelain collection for Misen. Possibly best known for his use of wood, in 2015 he launched a new product, Form Card, essentially a small piece of bioplastic which can be heated and then moulded, allowing users to fix and repair their own products. His work has been exhibited at New York's MoMA, Design Miami, Design Museum Holon, the V&A, and the Design Museum in London. He's also done commissions for the likes of Paul Smith, Blomberg, and the Museum of Childhood. And if that wasn't enough, he also teaches at London Metropolitan University. Peter, thank you very, very much for doing this. Thanks for the invite, Grant. Really nice to speak to you. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, we should just explain, we tried to do this earlier in the week, and for technical reasons, it all went horribly wrong. So it's Friday evening, it's nine o'clock or just past nine. Have you put your kids to bed, all right? Honestly, they are in the room next door with my partner and they've promised not to make a single sound. So they're being extremely good. (laughs) So if there are any bangs and noises, we'll know who it is. They're pretty good. They're pretty well behaved. Back in April, I did a lockdown special with the designer Gareth Neal, thinking it might be the only one that I did. Maybe I'd possibly do two at a push. And here we are, back in lockdown. How has 2020 been for you? (laughs) I think all things considered, it's been incredibly interesting. I've had some huge downs and huge ups, large amounts of time with my family. All things considered, it's been really fascinating, I have to say. So, you know, it's been positive. Mainly positive, because we're on a mass Zoom call together through the Design Dialogue Network, and it sounded like you're having a hard time at that moment. Yeah, so I haven't joined that group again yet. I should come back and say, like, everything's cool, everything's fine. <laughs> I had agreed to work from home at that time. I, I share a studio with a, a bunch of people, and we were sorting out who was going in and who wasn't going in. And I had sort of volunteered. I had space at home, so I decided to work from home. I was finding that extremely difficult with two children, with homeschooling going on at the same time. Mm. I was hitting a point of despair. So yeah, that was a tough time. It was just more that you sort of find yourself kind of fiddling around rather than getting anything done. I was having my working days, but they were super schizophrenic and just distracted. I love spending time with my kids and we were, everything just ends up sort of chopped up into little pieces, but it's, it was what it was. It was really lovely when I was with the kids, but it was impossible to get anything substantial done. Having said that, at the same time, I was working with Sarah on a series of commissions. It was That's why I said it was kind of like good and bad things were happening all at the same time. So quite a few commissions came in at the same time for pieces with Sarah, which were all made in Japan with the, the craftspeople that I worked with in Japan. So I was, <laughs> I was already working remotely with them. And then we had a bunch of projects came in that were working remotely. So those kind of kept me sort of occupied during that time. So you found a way through it. Yeah. As you mentioned, I have the form card project, which is always sort of taking time in all different kinds of ways for me. So there's sort of always something to do. Yeah. There's never not things to do. So we took a bunch of hits. The product took a bunch of hits, like quite a few of our retailers closed, which was really sad. 
but you know, different things sort of bubbled up and something's ebbed away. Mm. So one of the games we like to play on this podcast is uh, generally we interview people in their studios and we get them to describe it. Now, obviously, I know you're at home with the kids next door <laughs> right now, but maybe you could give the listeners a sense of your working environment. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think you'd be better <laughs> off asking my studio colleagues. <laughs> what can I say? I'm incredibly messy. Well, I'm not. it's not that I'm messy. I'm, I'm more of a hoarder. So I tend to have an awful lot of things around me all the time. And I wouldn't say that it's messy as much as more just piled up. And I tend to like to see everything. I don't like things packed away, right. which is like quite upsetting and it's not good for one's sort of <laughs> mental states. But I think I get more kind of freaked out if it's all packed away and I can't see what's going on. So my desk, which has an awful lot of stuff on it, bits of projects, bits of kids' toys, tools, materials, bits of other people's projects, lots of things on the wall. I don't generally work as a kind of clean industrial designer that's not how my brain works it's not how it's not manifested in my my working space recently i say recently about a year ago we moved into a new building got a fantastic new studio which we've got really nice offices on the first floor and then uh, a big workshop space on the ground floor i do have the possibility to sort of make things and keep that very separate from my kind of office work so i have a workshop as well there's a big space table saws lathe band saws sanders all that kind of woodworking equipment I do a lot of casting and metal work as well. So we've got different equipment down there as well. Because we last caught up properly when you were in your previous space in Stoke Newington. And I remember at the time you were aware you were going to leave and you said something quite interesting to me. The way you described it, that studio space started in earnest when you won a grant from the Esme Furbone Foundation and decided to buy a bunch Mm. of tools with it. And you said, and I quote, that when we moved here, it kind of dictated what we became as a studio. In Mm. the same way, with this transition to another studio, we may take on less making space. So that's not the case. You've still got your making space there. Making is still part of what you do. Yeah. Things kind of developed over time. We know pretty much more what we need from a space. I got a grant via the Design Museum um, from the Esme Fairburn Trust. That meant that we could buy workshop equipment. So we got a few machines, some of which we've still got. And it just meant that we could make things, whereas that's quite unusual for graduates to set up a studio with workshop machinery mm. immediately, unless they're really setting out to be furniture people. That meant that we could make prototypes and things for galleries and things for shops and things for interiors. And as I said, it, it did mean that we were kind of versatile and able to create our own things rather than getting companies to make things for us. So we had, for me and for several other people in the studio, it meant that we were making things for a variety of different environments. And it certainly took me in a particular direction. Mm. I mean, and you use the word we, you're part of this loose collective called OK Studio, uh, who you met through the Royal College of Art. I mean, that includes Raw Edges, Hunting in the Rude. How do you work together as a group? <laughs> we don't. We're just <laughs> friends. Um, there have been a few dallies here and there. A few people have done projects together, but inevitably we've kind of gone off and done our own things. We've done quite a few really nice exhibitions together, lots of parties together. We're good friends, been very close friends for a long time. And most of us came off the same platform at the Royal College of Art. So we studied under Daniel Charney and Roberto Feo on Platform 10 on the Design Products Department. And we became very close friends there. And that continued, yeah, that continued after the college, which is really good. Mm. It's, it's a really sort of positive thing in my life, I think. Well, you've had this fascinating career in terms of materials, at least, which is, you know, ostensibly what this podcast is about. And as I alluded to in the intro, you're probably best known for your work in wood. But in a number of magazine articles over the years, including one I've written, actually, you seem a little bit kind of blasé about it. You've almost gone <laughs> as far as to say that you don't really love it, 
it's just a convenient <laughs> vehicle for your ideas. Is that true? It is really true. I'm a very kind of like difficult person when it comes to certain things. And I think wood is one, one of those things. <laughs> I do use wood a lot and it's mostly because it's, it's a very immediate material. It's kind of like the, the solid, it's a bit like clay. It's something you can manifest an idea very quickly with it. With metal, you, it takes a bit more pre-planning and there's less kind of spontaneity with it. And I immediately took to wood because, yeah, it's just got the immediacy of creating structures very, very quickly. I'm extremely wary. There's a huge kind of fetishization around wood, which I respond very badly to. I tend to forbid my students from, I try to forbid them from using hardwood and varnishing and sanding and things like that, just to try and kind of don't get seduced by, by its <laughs> material qualities. So what are they allowed to use? What materials do you let them use? They tend to just ignore me, to be honest, right. so that's okay. okay. And I actually, ha- because of the lockdown, I haven't forbid them to do anything. I've forbid them to use, and I haven't done any forbidding this year. Usually <laughs> I forbid them from working in hard, <laughs> I forbid students from working in hardwood. I discourage them from making chairs. That doesn't work at all. Forbid them from doing uh, hexagons, kintsugi, um, what else? Yeah, there's a few no-nos for me. I prefer students and prefer me to work as immediately as possible and not slave over things. I think that's it's more important to kind of look at something, have a think about it and move on. Mm. Uh, the longer you spend polishing it up, that's entering into a different part of your mind, which is what you think people expect of you or your expectations of other people. I think it's better to just have a quick look at something you've made and move on. That's always how I've thought about the world. Mm. When you describe yourself as difficult, difficult in what sense? <laughs> oh my God. I'll bring my partner into the room. Let me just give it a shout. I think in every way conceivable, I'm a Scorpio, which is well, you and me both. kind of characteristic of us. How are you? Mm. When's your birthday? 13th of November. Oh, there you go. Uh, so what are we on? Oh, it's coming up soon. Nice. Soon, 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 people. If you're listening, it's very soon. <laughs> Everyone send Grant a birthday yeah, card. please. <laughs> I'm very difficult, very contrary. I was talking to someone today about something completely unrelated to design, and but she happened to ask me, like, why do you... Uh, it was, I was helping out with some things during the pandemic, and it was that my local fountain area, I live opposite a fountain, so a little green area, it's in terrible condition. I started renovating it. I was stripping down the benches, sanding them and varnishing them with my son, Leon. She asked, why do you do that? And like, why would a design person or a creative person do that? And I think it comes from this sad dissatisfaction with the world being how it is and thinking... It could be better with a little bit of input. You can change the world for the better. Someone might look at that and think that's a really positive thing. I tend to look at that as being quite a negative trait. You know, just leave the world alone. It can be what it is and just accept it how it is. But, you know, sadly, I'm kind of cursed with that mentality. Well, you were talking on Instagram the other day. You're very upset about a broom handle, I seem to recall. Oh, Jesus. My. What was it about the broom handle that, that had irritated you? Okay. First of all, the idea that someone throws a broom away because the broom handle's broken, that's bad. But also it was a really, really nice broom. Sorry, let's just take a step back. There was a broom on a rubbish heap was the photo, which was accompanied by text yeah. getting you quite cross about this. Oh, oh God. It was uh, <laughs> numerous things. It was a big pile of rubbish with a big broom. It wasn't a small broom. It was a lovely big broom. And it had been thrown away because the broom handle had snapped. So someone had thrown away the, the whole broom head because the broom handle had snapped. You know, there's a few things that designers do that irritate me. And one of them is this kind of clarion call about make less and make better. And it just drives me, it drives me insane. Because those people usually are super materialistic, I have to say. And I just think the world doesn't deserve so many good things. 
people are really so attuned to disposability and I'm not into sustainability. It's not a thing for me at all. It's not a preoccupation for me, but I always fix things. And it just, the, the kind of passivity of human population just drives me nuts. Oh, I sound like a really grumpy old man. I was going to say, give them rubbish. That's all they deserve. No, there's a small proportion of them that shouldn't be given nice brooms. <laughs> oh God. People are going to listen to this. So more worse things is really your credo. Is this what we're saying? No, I'm just being grumpy. (laughs) I think I was just ranting. I was really shocked that someone could be given that broom and they end up throwing it in the bin because the handle broke. Fair enough. By the way, everyone that's listening, you can repair a broom handle. That's what's meant to happen. (laughs) You had to bring that up. I'm sorry. Well, you put it out there. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I've just frequently, <laughs> I put things on social media and then instantly regret them and then delete them. <laughs> Again, that's how my mind works. It's like just general dissatisfaction with absolutely everything. Can we talk about your background? Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? I grew up in London. I'm one of the 6% of Londoners who are from London. I grew up in Bounds Green which is in North London. And then I went to Southgate. I moved to Palmer's Green. I went to Southgate School in North London. Maybe some of my old teachers might end up listening to this. My parents were both, originally they were both teachers. And then my mum became a headmistress and my dad became a schools inspector. Right. What did they teach? My mum was a primary school head teacher. And my dad was uh, an English teacher, English and drama teacher. And then he right. went on to run the education inspection service in Harrow. And you're a ferocious collector of things as a child, I believe. Yeah, still am. Still are. Mm. It's a terrible trait. <laughs> still am. I'm extremely jealous of people who aren't. I frequently try and throw away lots of things that I have. I've got many, many collections. I tried to think that I don't have collections, but I've still got things from the 80s and 90s. Uh, When I was a boy, I actually used to walk with my chin down on my chest so that my head was looking down at the floor all the time. I was very concerned that I would miss something. I was always looking at the floor, assuming that something special was about to appear. And I was always collecting the things I would find on the floor. And I remember there was a school assembly and I was going up to the front to get a certificate or something, I can't remember. And I walked to the front, looking down at the floor with my chin stuck to my chest and everybody burst out laughing. I can't remember how I stopped doing it, but a few people were kind of commenting that, you know, you need to look up when you're walking along. <laughs> I don't know if my parents remember it being like that, but I, re- I remember it vividly. So what kind of things did you collect? I used to have boxes, like I guess ice cream boxes or Tupperware boxes, and they were called the Bits and Bobs boxes. And typically bits of metal, like interesting bits of metal, springs, and I guess mostly engineered objects. I don't remember any of them particularly clearly. I did two big things when I was a kid. I used to have these collections and then I used to also make my own cut out and assemble kits. So I would get pieces of paper, draw the plans with all the dotted scissor lines and the fold lines with little scissor symbols. And then I'd cut them out and assemble them. Those two kind of things in the bits and bobs containers, that was really what I was into when I was a kid. What were you like at school? I've seen an interview where you said that craft was restricted to the difficult kids while you were there. (laughs) So you didn't do much craft. This is how you ended up in art and sculpture. You weren't tricky, obviously. I was always very, very jealous of the craft kids. Mm. You know, there's a hierarchy. There's real hierarchy in the creative world. And for some reason, art is up there. It's really unfair. So I really wanted to do craft, which was kind of woodworking and making stuff. And I was sort of filtered into the art world. I sound like a scratch record. I've said this before, but craft was kind of reserved for the kids who liked sort of hitting bits of wood, you know, bits of metal with a, with a hammer. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And it's funny because I used to do the graphic design course and I could see out the window, there was like a kind of a shed 
where all the kids were and they were kind of smashing things in this shed. <laughs> Always looked far more attractive. I ended up moving into arts. I had some really fantastic art teachers, Mr. Powis, Miss Keeble, um, maybe if they end up listening to this. They were very challenging, but I had a hard time. I had a very sort of hard relationship with art because I was very, very arty. I was always painting little monsters, little lead figures, Warhammer characters, and making all kinds of little creatures and things like that. I think I started to get progressively lost as the further I went into the art world. And that started with my kind of A-level art, where we were kind of looking at more sort of challenging art. And I realized it was getting a little bit more confusing. Then I went on to do my foundation course. I was getting the hang of what was expected of me in terms of art without really understanding what these kind of quite complex questions were. And then I went on to study sculpture at Central St. Martin's, which in some ways was fantastic. And I did have some sort of glimmers of things making sense to me, but the art world in general just utterly confuses me, continues to confuse me. And I, I've been to some exhibitions sometimes and I'm just... In what sense? I don't know what 90% of it means. I really, really don't. <laughs> it leaves me completely cold. <laughs> I respond to objects and materials and processes and everything around me is made of those things, regardless of whether it's art or not. And everything is communicating to us all the time. And I kind of respond. I think about all of these things. We all think about all of these things all of the time, very, very, very deeply. Nothing special happens when you look at art that makes it special in object terms. If someone cooks you dinner, you think about it as something that someone has made with an intention and exactly the same rules apply to art. But for some reason, it's held up in a very different way that's further up the hierarchy chain. And most of it, to me, I'm very sort of dismissive of it, I guess, but I, it leaves me very kind of empty, usually, when I see most art. Some of my favourite things in the world are pieces of art. Such as? My God, like James Terrell pieces, mm. Anish Kapoor pieces, Richard Serra. I'm like crazy about Richard Serra. Yeah, stuff like that. So very materially driven stuff, in other words. Yeah, Richard Deacon pieces, Tony Cragg. And ironically, all the kind of like old school uh, Central St. Martin's, old St. Martin's <laughs> proper sculpture people. That's the kind of world that I like. When you left St. Martin's, you ended up making props and models and sets and you made these big mascot heads. Yeah. I seem to recall. Where were they worn? Mask. Oh, so the mascot heads, like the, yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that one. I did all kinds of prop making. I think it's one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. So I worked for a quite a well-known mascot, like walk-around mascot company called Rainbow Productions. I have no idea if they still exist. And they're down in Wimbledon. I was quite good at head modeling. I had a bit of training in college. So I could model these cartoon characters in plasticine and then transfer them into large plastazotes shells, which is a fantastic technique. And I, I usually, like once every couple of years, I pass that on to my students. It's a really mm. lovely technique. It was a great place to work because it was uh, mostly ladies working there and they were sort of doing all the, all the sewing and, and whatnot. And there was always everyone standing up and chatting and incredibly sociable place. And I, everything was made out of plastazotes, if you happen to know plastazote grants. I don't, no. Uh, so plastazote is this kind of sheet material. It's basically like a foam rubber sort of stuff you might get on some cheap trainers, on the soles of cheap right. trainers or possibly inside. And it was quite funny. So most of us, was, well, all of us were standing up all the time or sitting on stools and everyone would get a bit sort of fatigued so they ordered some anti-fatigue mats for everyone this big package arrived with these anti-fatigue mats that opens up the box and inside it was just sheets of plastazote which is what we were building everything from <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go so then you're busy using these sheets of, of plastazote and making props models and sets then everything changes in 2004 you enroll at the design products course of the royal college of art 
How did that come about? Why the shift into design? It didn't happen in 2004. So I went traveling in 1999. I went to South America, ended up living in Brazil for a while. While I was there, I was still making sculptures. All this time, I was still making these funny kind of sculptures, like lots of things with radios and lo-fi equipment. And when I was traveling, I continued making a few little sculptures here and there. I was living in Rio de Janeiro and I was collecting coconuts. When I say I'm a hoarder, imagine you've got a tiny flat in Brazil and you start collecting coconuts, big green coconuts out of the bins. That's what I mean when I say I'm a hoarder. <laughs> well, what did you do with the coconuts? Did you eat them? Yeah. Okay. No, so they're old. They've just been, oh, you know, people on the beach would drink them. Right. Yeah, so they've been just chucked in the bins and I was getting them out of the bins and carrying them up the hill. I was living in a lovely place called Santa Teresa, which is just a nice place in Rio. And they were just such big objects. I couldn't bear the idea that they were getting thrown away. And I just thought they had to be, something had to happen to them. So I was getting them out of the bins and carrying them up the hill. They're incredibly heavy. It could take three a day. And I had all these coconuts in the sort of backyard and was thinking about what to do with them. And I started, I made a little sculpture. There was a, a shop down in the city, the sort of city part of the city, not the beachy part of the city which was stripping old machines apart and just selling off the components. And I used to love this shop because I, I liked lo-fi equipment. And I found this box of, um, they were like little monkey heads, about the size of like a large egg. And I was taking them apart and using the little radios to make sculptures. And then I started installing them in the coconuts as little um, <laughs> cooker, cooker radios. <laughs> and my next door neighbor is a lovely lady called uh, Huchi Ruth, which is pronounced Huchi in Portuguese. She said, oh, it would be a nice product. You should make these products and start selling them. That was my first product. Uh. I stripped the green off the coconut, which is a monumental task if anyone's ever tried to do that, and installed the monkey head radio in there, put the knobs on the outside, and then I started selling them on the beach and in some hippie fairs and things like that. And did you sell loads? It was a financial disaster, but uh, <laughs> I met loads of people. A really interesting experience. It was a good way to meet lots of people. It was good fun. Then were you set on the Royal College? Was that always your destination? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we took a detail into coconuts. Yeah, <laughs> into coconuts. So I think of that product. Interestingly, when I was a boy, it was very clear. If I hadn't had the interference of the art world in my career, I've said this in a million mm. previous interviews, so it sounded a bit like a scratch record. When I was a boy, it was all very simple. I was interested in toothbrushes and objects, just the object world around us, jam jars, bits of metal. It was all very simple. The art diversion kind of scrambled things a bit. And it was really when I started making these coconut radios that I kind of was thinking, I do like making objects. I do like making products, basically, consumer products, as cold as I could put it as that, consumer product. I got back to London and continued doing props and costumes and whatnot. And I met my partner, Orly Orbach, who's an illustrator, anthropologist. And she was at the Royal College of Art at the time. And I went to see one of the exhibitions there. There's a few people I could name check here that kind of persuaded me to, not persuaded me to go there, but I saw their work and that persuaded me to go there. So I saw the work of Julia Lohman, who, oh, yeah. you know, who has been on the show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, has she? I didn't spot yeah, yeah. that. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I saw Julia's work at the exhibition with these incredible stools um, with cow skin with veins inside them. So I saw her work and a guy called James Carrigan, who is one half of Sugru. I saw his work yep. as well. I saw those and I thought, oh, this looks like the sort of place I could, this looks like the sort of thing that I would like to do. I did also see the interaction design department and wanted to do that, but I felt that you had to be a computer programmer. So I diverted and I applied to do product design. I had a sculpture portfolio. All of my stuff was sculpture. I didn't have any products. I had a xylophone made out of pencils. That was the kind of most producty thing mm. that I had. 
I was really grateful to the tutors who interviewed me and, and let me in with the sculpture portfolio. I was just going to ask whether your xylophone sculpture worked. Could you use it? Uh, as a pencil or as a xylophone? As a xylophone. <laughs> it was a really, really rubbish xylophone and it was a really <laughs> quite a rubbish pencil as well. At the time in the interview, so Ron Arad was running the course. And he tried to do a drawing of me using the xylophone <laughs> with all the pencils. So the idea was to tune the xylophone, you sharpen the pencils. A silly little idea. I've still got it, if you want it. If anybody's listening, if they, want it, if they need a xylophone pencil. So one of the things I wanted to pick up on was your fascination with shelving, mm. which I would posit is a little bit unusual for a designer. I mean, the first piece of yours I ever saw was when you graduated from the Royal College of Art, actually. It was in a show at the Great Eastern hotel at liverpool street as i recall oh you came you came up with this really interesting shelving system called makeshift that was made up of kind of wedges so you didn't need any fixings they would just wedge into any space mm -hmm. and that's gone on to be made in a few materials from timber to expanded polypropylene mm -hmm. but what is it about shelving why the fascination i mean presumably it's to house this massive hoard of stuff you keep it's even sort of purer than that at the time when I graduated, I did actually have two kind of shelving products. I had that makeshift piece and next to it, I had a very kind of like simpler version of the expression of lifting something up. And it was just a stick with a little kind of metal finger that holds a box up against a wall. And on the floor, there was a bag of rice, a big, big bag of rice. And the idea was when you move in, you can have your box or your TV pinned against the wall up in a corner and you support it with a bag of rice. And it, is, it just changes the relationship of when you've moved into that house, instead of having stuff on the floor, it's elevated. And I think the feeling when you construct something is like lifting your head up off the floor. It's this feeling that you've elevated. You have this relationship to the mm. thing that you're looking at. It's standing up. It's looking at you and you're kind of experiencing it in an upright position, which I think is, goes back to, I don't know, us as primates and cavemen and moving on from just kind of scrabbling around on the floor, but instead lifting something up. It's a magical thing. When you screw something into a wall and it's fixed there and you take a step back, there's something kind of magical about it, this thing floating in front of you. And it forces you to take your chin off your chest, right? <laughs> it all goes back to it that feeling. Back. Yeah, yeah. I've always had these things for shelving. I have kind of talked about it. Potentially, it's got some kind of link to my hoarding and collecting and having places to put things. But having said that, I don't generally put things on shelves. I usually have things scattered across my, my working desk, sadly. Yeah. yeah. So it might have something to do with that, but it's primarily this kind of like the magic of elevating things. I find that really, really valuable. I know many designers are kind of into chairs. That's a real thing. They fixate on sort of making the chair. And we've got a friend who always makes the table. He's always doing the table. People kind of get attracted to different typologies. Yeah. And mine happens to be shelves. Every time I'm working on something, I end up thinking, that'll make a nice shelf or that'll make a nice table. And a table is basically a shelf with one level. So it's lifting it off the floor, but it's also it's an element of display. Is that important, I wonder? Yeah. So it's the two things. It's the screwing the thing to the wall, but then taking a step back and then looking at that thing. Mm. There's something about that kind of stepping back and wondering at this elevation. It's like a little sort of magic trick that we can achieve as sentient beings so look you're in the design world mm. and you've established yourself quite rapidly as we said through products mainly in timber i mean on route you have worked with other materials we've talked about the polypropylene briefly you also did this hefty kind of set of shelves and tables and galvanized steel for scp i seem to recall mm. and there are threads kind of emerging an interesting symmetry or splitting something in two appears to be one that, mm. and there's also a sense of decay 
often in your work. Are you conscious of that? And where do these interests emerge from? So, I mean, you, you mentioned several different things there. I did. Geometry has always been sort of a wonder for me. We think of the world as being made of materials, but it's not even made of materials. It's made of, is it made of numbers? What is reality? You have geometry passing through and occupying absolutely everything. And you can have the same geometry in one location. And then on the other side of the planet, the same geometry applies to a different environment. It's, it's kind of this incredibly bizarre thing that we understand. That's one of the big things for me is my relationship to geometry and humans and beings relationship to geometry and how weird it is that we understand the huge, huge complexity. I'm just looking at this box of Lego in front of me and you, you understand it. You look at it and you understand it. That's super weird because it's such a complex jumble of shapes and colors and there's a roll of something, some fabric on the side there. Like everything makes sense to you. And that's, that's really, really incredible. So geometry's always been a central thing for me. Decay has become a preoccupation for me as I've got older, perhaps that's become more and more of a preoccupation and mortality, especially. Mm. And this idea that when you, particularly when you're an industrial designer, there's this kind of holy grail of making injection molding, injection molding plastic, less so now because of the stigma attached to plastic. But, you know, I think there's a certain sense that you've really made it once you get your first injection molded piece of plastic product out there, that is real object. It's kind of challenging God. You've engraved something. You know, the second commandment is thou shalt not engrave anything on this planet, whatever. But you've engraved a piece of metal and you've created a mold that goes on to give birth to all of these beautiful, brightly colored pieces of plastic. That's really, that is the height of design. You think they're invincible, they're they're eternal, but the reality is everything's in flux. Everything's constantly changing and decaying. And that's something I've come more and more to perceive, not appreciate, but but perceive as as I've got older. So many of my pieces have looked at the nature of nature reclaiming materials and decay setting in, not as a destructive process, but as a claiming, a sort of natural claiming process. You talk about the word process. I was intrigued to learn you don't sketch much. Instead, you write a sentence about a piece you want to create. <laughs> That's happened more and more. I have done a bunch of sketches recently, funny enough. I'm doing a project for a very nice Sicilian company called Dizay. Name check to those guys. I'm working on that now, and I have done a bunch of sketches and 3D models and a lot of sketches. But for my own, saying for my own work, that is my own work. For my pure, untethered work, which is just me, I'll be walking along and I'll think, oh, that would be nice. Those have ceased to manifest themselves as sketches and they have just become sentences. And I've got a very long list on the computer and the phone of just, it's called my work. It's this endless list of sentences of things that I'd like to make one day. (laughs) It's not going too well. It's a very, very, very long list. They're just locked in your head. You just have all this stuff locked away that you can just recall and the words are a trigger. Yeah, yeah. I've got a really broad range of making skills. None of it's kind of like master of any of them, but I do know how to make quite a wide range of things. I don't need to generally sketch them out. It's funny I'm saying that because I I always tell my students, uh, I teach at London Metropolitan University and I always instruct them to start making as soon as possible to manifest something that they can look at and think about. But for me, it's quite clear in my head. These days, it's become very, very clear in my head what it's meant to look like. Mm. And I, I might do a drawing to kind of communicate something to a client, but it usually ends up looking very, very similar to what I had in my head in the first place. But then you have this other side of your practice that emerged in, I think, 2015. 
I remember we'd both given talks at Brighton University, I think, and we were in the pub having lunch afterwards when oh, you pulled yes. out this credit card-sized piece of bioplastic <laughs> and explained you were about to launch it on Kickstarter. And that was FormCard. Wow. So for the listeners, what, what is FormCard and, and what does it do? That was before that had happened. That's very, you, you must have seen one of the first ones. I had ones. a scoop. I had a scoop, which I, uh, being a terrible yeah. journalist, I obviously completely ignored. But there you go. <laughs> we were in the pub for a while. We were. So form card is, uh, could repeat the byline, it's a, it's a handy pocket-sized card of meltable bioplastic that you can melt in a cup of hot water and you can use it to fix, make, modify the world around you. So it's basically a, a DIY material, a craft material, a fixing material. It just melts in a cup of hot water, goes something like chewing gum or blue tack, and then you can mould it into usable components. It goes strong like nylon. It fuses onto some plastics, not all plastics. It fuses onto some plastics, so you can use it to fix a broken fridge drawer, car bumper. Right. Yeah, it's extremely, extremely versatile. It's also biodegradable. Mm. But uh, that's not an important aspect for me, but it is biodegradable. <laughs> Why isn't it important? <sighs> the sustainability thing. Yeah. Even just being a truth, are you just kicking against the consensus? Where do we start with this? Um, I think the world's problems... Okay, it's great that there's people that really do care about this. People that really, really do care about those kinds of things really dedicate an awful lot of their lives to really, really tackling these problems. And, and I appreciate that hugely. I think the kind of casual sustainability is what I don't like. This call for like make less, make better is kind of casual consumerists' interpretation of sustainability. I'm an extremely frugal person. Sadly, I don't throw anything away. <laughs> I think we've established that, yeah. <laughs> I re—I know, yeah. I repair things, like I obsessively repair things and I obsessively make things. Empowering people to make things and fix things and take care of the world is not talked about. Which is what Form Card is all about, right? It's what it's all about. I made this product because I thought this is something that everyone should be using. Everyone should have it in their pocket. Everyone should have it in their tool chest, in their drawer car you know in their glove compartment this thing can get you out of situations and it can help you take care of the world it was made for me and it was made for people like me i think it's far more important to talk to people about taking care of the world than telling them to keep living the passive consumer life that they have but do it using sustainable materials it's not just pollution that's bad for the world it's just it's attitudes that are bad for the world which are well i'm the wrong person to comment on that Anyway, you get you get the angle I'm coming <laughs> from. I'm getting it. Yes, I think you're railing against the casual sustainability lobby, which is fair enough. I know people with two cars who talk about sustainability. I'm like, come on, you know. <laughs> or they've got an electric car and a normal car. I'm like, you know how much energy it takes? You know how much materials it takes to make a car? Come on. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's get back to form card. <laughs> I, I can feel the yeah. anger. How did you come across the material in the first place? It's actually a medical material. It's what they use to make paracetamol capsules and surgical stitches. It doesn't digest within your body. It just dissipates. It's mainly used for drug delivery is what it's called. Mm. And I was running a workshop in Boisbouchet. There's a series of workshops that run in a French residence in, in the beautiful French countryside. Many, many designers go there and craftspeople and they run these workshops with people. Beautiful location. Hopefully their program might be up and running next year. So any young designers who are interested in working on an, an amazing summer camp, apply to the Domaine de Boisbouchet. Email me if you need the name. I decided to run something there using different materials that you could work with in your home. So the idea of kind of your home as a factory. 
which actually was a project that was set to me by my tutors at the Royal College of Art, Daniel and Roberto. So I was working with Sugru, which is an amazing rubber. Name check to them. Thank you. Um, we have a bit of a funny relationship, but they did provide uh, material for that workshop, which was great. And I was also working with this medical material. I got s- very large sacks of that. Well, I think at the time I had what I thought was very large sacks of it, but you know. And I was walking around the residence. So I was working with these young people, students, and a few kind of um, older people. And I was just getting them to make as many objects with it and find different uses for it. And my assistant at the time, a great designer called Jamal Okten, name check to him, he ended up making a canoe, like a fully working canoe. We had truck tarpaulins from Freitag and he was bonding them together with ribs made out of the material. And another girl was making these beautiful kind of emblems on the front of this canoe. And it was a fully functioning canoe. He did it in a day and a half. But the whole time that all these amazing little experiments were going on around the chateau, around the countryside, I was carrying little bits in my pocket, little flat pieces about the size of a credit card. The reason I was doing that was because they were quite handy to carry on on you because the material comes as kind of raw, like rice. It comes as kind of granules and you have to melt it down in a pot, then squash it. You have to homogenize it and, and sort of process it. And I kept on making up these little tablets of it so that I had some flat sheets already ready to use. And I thought, that's what you need. You need to take out this intermediate step to create a product, which is, it's a credit card that is always ready to use. Mm. That's how it happened. So I had these these little bits in my pockets that uh, turned into the first form cards. But more recently, you've been using it to do other things, right? Making products. You've got a series entitled Semi-Synthetic, and there were dishes at a show you curated at the London Design Festival earlier in the year. Mm. Semi-Synthetic came about out of a residency, I think. You were looking at the Victorian inventor Alexander Parks and the history of plastic in the East End of London. Tell me a bit about that project. Yeah, so that was great. So so my partner, Orly, uh, mentioned that she'd spotted this artist residency with Bow Arts Trust. To be an artist in residence, part of their gallery program to to look at yeah the history of the first semi-synthetic plastic which was uh, developed, it wasn't invented, but it was developed in Hackney. There was two of us, and I became one of the artists in residence. The first semi-synthetic plastic was called cellulose nitrate. It is attributed to this Victorian, let's call him a, I don't know if he's an inventor, of a very weird relationship with him. (laughs) I don't think he was an inventor. He was a thief. The Victorians were thieves. They went around the planet stealing things, and he did that from a Swiss inventor. The man who actually invented it was Swiss. And the Victorians rewrote the history books. So Interesting. Yeah. So there was a man called Schoenberg, who is little talked about, who ran some experiments and he noticed that he had a rag. Cell- uh, so cellulose nitrate is made from rags, cotton rags or paper or anything cellulose based, which is melted in nitric acid and it forms this kind of jelly. And the jelly, when you compress it and you squeeze out all the nitric acid, becomes this kind of putty, which when that goes hard, it then can be worked like wood. And Schoenberg, he was drying a rag covered in nitric acid next to his fire, which burst into flames and then turned into a kind of jelly. He discovered that, oh my God, you can make this kind of weird jelly putty, which turns into this hard material. His discovery ended up getting reported by his patent lawyer to Alexander Park's patent lawyer. And through a series of kind of devious machinations, the Swiss guy was invited to London to demonstrate his material and Alexander Parks was at the demonstration and that's where he stole the idea from. But the Victorians rewrote the history books and if you read most history books, Parkazine, which is cellulose nitrate, is mostly attributed to being the invention of Alexander Parks. So I have a bit of a funny relationship with him. 
interestingly, there's a lady who was the main plastics historian at the Science Museum. And I tracked down a reference to a comment that Alexander Parks had commented. He'd seen um, some vases made from cellulose nitrate that Schoenberg had made in Switzerland. And she didn't believe it. She refused to believe it. And then she went into the archives of the Science Museum. She found a letter describing there weren't vases, there were little bells. So the first semi-synthetic objects that were ever made were little plastic bells, which were sent to London, but they since have disappeared. I'm angry about that as well. Yeah, well, I can sense this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, Sorry. This, that's all right. This early plastic was used for things like, I mean, they tried to use it for things like billiard balls, right? But they were in the habit of exploding, I understand. Yeah, that was where it all went. So Alexander Parks answered Queen Victoria's call out to come up with a substitute for ivory specifically because they were running out of of elephants they'd killed something like 20,000 elephants or 40,000 elephants and they were running out of tusks for billiards balls mostly pianos and billiards balls so he was making these billiards balls but it's it, cellulose nitrate is extremely flammable and um, in billiards halls people were smoking and when they crashed into each other these things would explode and cause fires inside the billiards halls so it's like chocolate teapots, really. He was working with his partner, was this businessman called Daniel Spill, and the product went through various names. It was a bit of a dodgy operation. The company had lots of different names and the same product just repackaged and resold. But they used to make white collars for your shirts. Your shirt would be filthy and used day after day after day, but your collar would be easy wipe down. <laughs> that was a big thing. And it went on to become ping pong balls, one of the only things that's still made out of cellulose nitrate. Oh no, made out of celluloid. So cellulose nitrate went on to become celluloid and they make ping pong balls from it. Plectrums and ping pong balls. Which, which fortunately don't explode. Yeah. You took all this history and you started making, well, I saw these huge dishes that you made out of form card, right? But they're with a wooden mould. Yeah. So when we produce form card, it's injection moulded. It goes into big metal moulds. And generally the moulds have an injection runner where the molten plastic is squirted down and that is clipped off. That's basically the waste material. And what I normally have done is all the waste material is clipped off and then it's reground and turned into different colored sort of darker form cards. But it's all usable material. So over the last few years, I've just been collecting boxes of it. Every time we do a production run, I might get sort of five or six boxes sent to the studio and it's all usable material. And I've just been using it for different RT projects. I almost said art there, didn't I? <laughs> I used it to make RT projects. <laughs> and one of the things I was making on the residency and more afterwards for the exhibition at London Design Festival, creating these sort of very, very rough wooden molds, sort of pie-shaped, pizza shapes, which are then um, chainsaw carved. So they've got extremely textured, rough wooden surfaces. And then the material is pushed onto that. And I make these dishes in segments, which have these extremely sort of rich, but repetitive, rich textures. And I was interested in, particularly on the residency, what I started working with was taking all these very bright colours, which reference injection moulding and the product world that we make all the form cards in, but then blending them all together into these very kind of muddy, boggy, swampy colours. And that's why the series, partly why the series is called Semi-Synthetic. It's synthetic. It comes from this sort of injection molded product but it's coming in these weird swampy colors and it's mm. in these kind of weird symmetrical chainsaw wooden molds and when you're not doing all this peter as you've alluded to you're teaching at the cas and have been since 2014 the show that we've mentioned at the london design festival back in september also included work from students that you've taught over the years um what is it you enjoy about teaching 
Um, I like the students. I really do like the students. I've got a really good bunch this year, which against all odds, I mean, I'm only online with them at the moment. We've done one live session, but they're coping with it surprisingly well. There's, you know, a lot of difficulties going on, but they're a creative bunch. Really like giving briefs, really, really simple briefs. And then it's like, you know, when you're sort of feeding fish and you're just chucking things in and there's this explosion of fish. It's a bit like that when you hand over a brief, a really simple brief, and then all of this stuff comes back to you, like all of this kind of information that you weren't expecting comes back to you. Every week at the moment, sort of warm-up sessions, I give them a one-day brief, really, really simple brief. So last week I did make a product using a shadow. And some of the ideas that they come back, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's got such sort of extreme different minds. And they come back, they usually say like, oh, I didn't get a lot done today or I didn't didn't really have a lot of time. And then they show you a brilliant idea mm. and it will just be a sketch. Or, or some of them, they will just say something like, wouldn't it be really good, you know, if you had a chessboard that was just created using shadows? It's like, I don't know what, what that would be like, but there's a possibility there to make a really interesting game, a really interesting product. Oh, this guy came up with a really amazing drill centering system using shadows, <laughs> using a series of LED lights. So I, I enjoy doing that. I did a, I think it's going to be the best, most successful project. I think I'm ever going to have the fortune to, to work on. We, we didn't have access to our workshops. It was two years ago. So I set them a brief instead to design a piece of pasta. I thought everyone can do this in their kitchens at home. And it's looking at sculptural forms. It's looking at objects, installation on a table. It's a bowl of these. I just thought anybody can do this and it could be an interesting object. And I asked someone at Carluccio's to come and give us a little intro to like, to see if they could judge it and we could pitch their pasta shapes to them. And it ended up Mr. Carluccio, Antonio Carluccio came and he spent three hours with the students talking to them about their pasta shapes. It was such a great project. That's what I love about it. It's like it's amazing. It's just like a, a bucket of fish. You just throw things in and it thrashes. Are you having to tailor your teaching now that people aren't able to be in workshops as they normally would be? Yeah, most of it is online for me. Um, frustratingly, we we are like we're having some like really good sessions. As I was saying, I'm doing like all these one day projects with them, and they're still rising to the challenge, which is great. There is this that slight digital delay just. You can't beat being with someone and discussing something and getting body language from someone and someone holding something up and turning it in the light in a particular way. And you just, you know, there's this kind of materiality that is really missing from online, which is a great shame. They're getting on with it. They are getting on with the situation they're in. It's hard, I've got to say. Um, so I'm, I'm praying that we get some kind of physicality back next year. There's something I found of yours in an old issue of a design magazine, Icon, that I was quite interested in. The writer, who I think was Will Wiles, wrote at that time and it was about a decade or possibly more ago oh my god that you define yourself as a maker as much as a designer and he says you say you find it difficult to delegate now i'm not sure <laughs> if that's changed no not in the slightest i'm the most useless boss <laughs> i've had various different people work for me over the years and i just i find it very very difficult to hand things over to people and i fuss like really really fuss over things so we form card, I've got a couple of people that help me with that and that's fine. I just basically leave them to their own devices, which is great. But when it comes to like the design work, I, when I say the design work, I mean me designing things and thinking about things. I find it extremely distracting to have anybody involved. Um, extremely, extremely distracting. 
it's not even a question of delegation. I wouldn't even think about delegating anymore unless it's making. Like when I'm making stuff and I know exactly what the thing is going to be, I've had various people come and help me at the studio in the workshop and that's fine. There's a bunch of people that I know who are really good at making things. Julian, one of my ex-students, Julian Leadham, check out his website, everyone. <laughs> he's, he's a lovely guy who uh, can make all kinds of things and he's helped me a lot over the last few years. Well, look, I've taken up, Peter, loads of your time on a Friday night. I'm sure you're gasping for a glass of wine or something. Final, very important question. Do you still live with a giant snail called Marvin? <laughs> no. It's funny you should say that because he came up in conversation the other day. <laughs> Me and my partner, Orly, we had this giant snail called Marvin who was more hassle to look after than a cat. It was about the size of a shoe. It was a huge creature. Oh they're quite, yeah, they're enormous. You have to clean the cage out of the vivarium. You have to clean out all the time. It has to be heated all the time. Sometimes you'd forget to leave the door closed and you come in and, oh my God, Marvin's gone. <laughs> and But the thing about a snail, it can go on any surface upside down anyway. And you'd have to walk around the house trying to find where the snail went. And there was one day I was walking around the room for ages, like looking for him. And I ended up, <laughs> ended up like I'd given up and I just sat down to watch, look at the computer, or whatever, and I closed the door and it was stuck to the back of the door the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> a thing the size of a shoe was stuck to the back of your door. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They're quite freaky creatures. They're beautiful. I've, I've thought about doing um, like a drawing class with my students actually, because they're, they're incredibly scott, even just normal snails. If you've got kids, just get some snails out of the garden and just pour some water on them, just get them and they just watch them kind of writhe and, and they're like living sculptures. They're so fluid and beautiful how they move and how they stretch. With the big snails, they probably didn't know this about snails, they have teeth. It's kind of like a chainsaw that goes down from the shell to their mouth and the giant snails, you can hear them eating. You can hear them crunching lettuce. It's really amazing. Well, it sounds like the perfect household pet. I don't know why everybody doesn't have one. <laughs> Peter, I think that's a uh, kind of a slightly disturbing, if I'm honest, place to leave it. <laughs> but I think we probably ought to leave it there. On a high note. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. That was fun. Lovely to talk to you, Grant. See you soon. See ya. Bye. To discover more about Peter's work, go to petermarigold.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and I have a new website. You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message to the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well. 